Welcome to the Show Me and Sue podcast. I'm Zach Walhorn, and I'm joined by David Stokes, Elias Chapellis, Susan Pennegrass, and Patrick Ishmael from the Show Me Institute. Elias, the governor signed Senate Bill 153 and 97. It's got two parts that, uh, it's got a lot of parts, but there's two parts that we're going to talk about. There's the sales tax collection aspect, and then David's going to cover some TIF reform, but break down the bills. What happened? Why should people care? Sure. So the big sales tax part is what is called the Wayfair, Wayfair piece, named after the Supreme Court decision, Wayfair, uh, the furniture company versus South Dakota, which allows states to collect uh, sales taxes from online retailers that don't have physical presences uh, in the state that they're in. So how it works right now is that if you go buy something online, uh, if the business is located in Missouri, you'll be paying the sales tax for where that business is. But if the business is not in Missouri, if they don't have a facility here, uh, a lot of times you're not going to be paying sales taxes on that uh, service. So with this bill starting in January 2023, um, you will be then paying sales taxes on these purchases from out of state, but it'll be based off of where you live, not where the business is because they're not in Missouri. David, what else is in there? Well, let's stick with the with the online sales tax collection aspect for a minute, and Elias, jump back in at, at any point. But this is where it gets really complicated, and we're going to have to speculate a little bit, uh, and that's at the local sales tax collection, because it's called a use tax. The use tax is simply the law authorizing cities and counties to collect their sales tax from online or out-of-state purchases. In some cases, they were passed a long time ago, and they mostly dealt with catalog purchases and business-to-business purchases. It was pre-internet for some cities and counties. But many, many cities and counties in Missouri have never adopted them. Because frankly, if you don't, if you didn't have any big businesses in your bedroom community, you know, most people didn't buy that much from catalogs, so it wasn't a whole lot of money. So you've got, for instance, St. Louis County and Jackson County are the two largest counties in the state of Missouri, and neither of them has a use tax. Neither of them has has ever passed one. Uh, They've been, I know it was rejected in St. Louis County, and I don't know if Jackson County even has one. Now, certain cities within both of those counties have use taxes, so you would, you in theory have to collect the online sales taxes for most of the city sales taxes, but the county ones, they they don't even have it. So, so you've got all these cities and counties that will likely be in the next year or so rushing to pass use taxes, and I think they should. But how do they create those use taxes? Because Elias and I are in a very small group of people who've like gone through Department of Revenue tax records to like see how this would apply, and there are certain cities and counties that pass use taxes that include transportation development districts and community improvement districts, and there are many cities and counties that have passed them that don't include these special taxing districts. So how do you how do you determine whether those are going to be collected or not? Because in some cities you'd be required to, and some cities you you won't. So the SID and TDD aspect is going to be very interesting. The number of cities and counties rushing to pass use taxes within the next year is going to be very interesting. And how this all plays out is I think going to be going to be fascinating. And I would very much hope, and I'm going to kick this back to Elias in a second, that in the same way that the state, as they pass this Wayfair bill, this online sales tax collection, is lowering the state income tax slightly to offset their revenue increases. I would hope that as cities and counties 
when and if they see large online sales tax collections, I would hope they would offset that with, with modest property tax cuts, uh, which is a much easier way for them to do it than other ways. So that's why I support that. Let me throw this to Patrick and that Patrick, I absolutely think that in Jackson County, they need with the 18 or so cities in Jackson County, many of them somewhat large, some of them tiny, that I think a pooled tax system for Jackson County, if and when Jackson County itself should adopt that, that use tax, I think the pooled system would be great for Jackson County. Yeah, I mean, I think tax competition is a good thing. I, I, you know, I, I haven't done enough research into the pooling of, of uh, sales taxes to really have a personal opinion about it. But, you know, I think that, that to the extent that you're able to disincentivize tax incentives and special taxing districts, I think that's that's progress. One thing I would toss into the mix, though, and this is a you know wide-ranging bill, and uh, I, I know that we've, we've got limited time, but one thing I also want to say that was in this tax bill is a uh, earned income tax credit. And I wanted to raise it because, one, it's an important piece of reform that benefits low-income Missourians who are working, but also this is one of those items that we publish as part of our very first blueprint. Um, the earned income tax credit really should have been law three years ago. And if it wasn't for intervention by, you know, some uh, senators who I think were trying to be too cute, we would have had an earned income tax credit in Missouri, you know, uh, you know, three years ago. But this year it got done. It was done in a revenue neutral way, which is terrific. Um, but, you know, you know, like everyone says, there is a lot that is in here. There's a lot to be known about exactly how these uh, policies are going to play out in practice. And, you know, specifically as the sales tax itself, um, you know, I, I think I think so long as the sales tax system is clear, so long as it's easy for consumers and for uh, retailers to to navigate. Um, I think that's the most important part. I, I hope in the future that we actually see a cap on, you know, the total sales tax rate, because there's been a lot of resist, resistance to that, even putting a cap that is above what, you know, even the highest rates that we have in Missouri right now. So there, there's still progress that can happen in the sales tax realm. Um, but I think that this this particular bill was a good step in the right direction for the most part. Uh, and it didn't just touch sales taxes, it touched other taxes as well. Patrick, also this week, the Missouri Supreme Court ruled that government agencies cannot charge for the time attorneys spend reviewing public records that are requested via the state's Sunshine Law. Um, for people who aren't familiar with how Sunshine requests work, why is this significant? Well, it's enormously significant. And the case is uh, Gross versus Parson. Uh, the the actual, actual facts, you know, the motivations of the parties aren't terribly important. What really matters is the situation, because the situation is replicated again and again with these Sunshine Law requests. Uh, the plaintiff asked for records from the governor's office about previous governor. The governor's office responded and said, okay, it'll cost you, you know, at least $3,600 and we're not going to start processing your, your request until you, you pay us. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are uh, other objections that the plaintiff had to this. I think he had 10 claims in total. But the most important one is the one that, that you're talking about is the question of attorney fees and specifically attorney time. And what you see with Sunshine Law requests, whether it's state government or, or local government, is you'll have some folks and a lot of this has to do with government culture in one area or another. Um, you'll have areas that, uh, or, or places or governments that are happy to provide the information that you're asking, and they're very quick about it, and they won't charge anything. And then sometimes you end up seeing places where it seems like they're actively trying to prevent you from getting the records. And the, one of the ways that they'll do that is by charging you 
a ton of money for it. Um, we saw this in the checkbook project where we had cities trying to charge us tens of thousands of dollars for records. We're seeing this with the curricula uh, project uh, where we're seeing uh, districts try to charge us thousands of dollars. And the core to those estimates, those cost estimates for uh, these records has to do primarily with review time and specifically in substantively attorney review time. Uh, the idea that, you know, it'll it'll take 50 hours of research and uh, it, it'll cost $40 an hour. And, you know, it's pretty easy to build up a pretty big number that way. And so the litigation was pretty straightforward. You know, what the plaintiff said was that, well, the Sunshine Law doesn't cover those that cost. Uh, you, you can't, as a government, charge those costs. They took that to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed. It's actually, a, it's a massive victory for transparency because like I said, you know, the, the precise, you know, motivations and details of this case aren't terribly important, but it is a situation that repeats itself again and again and again, where local governments and state government will try to evade transparency by pricing people out. And you can imagine if you're just a regular Missourian that, you know, is wanting to get engaged with their government to find out how it works. If you see a price tag that's, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, you may be dissuaded from, from pursuing that information. Um, but when you start talking about, uh, you know, $3,000, $10,000, and it's based around attorney's fees, um, it, to me, I, I always raise my eyebrow when I see responses like that, because I feel like I get the impression that that's purposeful. There's no, no need for that in most cases, substantively. And so when uh, government says now it's going to cost $3,000 or $4,000 for records that should be open to the public, uh, if that estimate is based around uh, attorney time, uh, then uh, it looks like they won't be able to charge that uh, that cost going forward. It's a but it's a big victory, uh, and I'm looking forward to taking full advantage of that uh, in the request that I've made and the request I'm going to make in the future. Is this change implemented immediately? Yes, there's there's no change to the law itself. Uh, the Supreme Court is is in, in its ruling is just clarifying what the law is, and as soon as the ruling has been made, the law is clarified for all intents and purposes. There there, there doesn't have to be a change by the legislature to implement what the law already says or doesn't say in this case. Susan. Yes. The Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, DESI. Mo DESI. is applying to receive funds, the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund from the American Rescue Plan. So Mo DESI is trying to get ARP funds from the ESSER fund. So it's ESSER. It's ESSER funds from APR. When you read the application, what did you see? So it's interesting. We have already gotten ESSER 1 and ESSER 2. So we've got hundreds of millions of dollars have come in in something called GEAR, which was um, some flexible spending for the governor only. And this last round of spending is $2 billion under the American Rescue Plan that will be coming into DESE in addition to the um, I think billion and a half they've already received. And most of it, 90% will be distributed to school districts. And then DESE itself will keep about 200 million. In order to, there is one, uh, I guess, hoop they have to jump through to get these funds, which they have to submit an application. And they have. And a um, couple of interesting things in this application that, that I see, uh, it's 55 pages, it's available on the DESE website. 
The first is that DESI acknowledges something the Shomi Institute's been talking about for some time. Their longitudinal data system is 15 years old. They have neither the hardware nor the software, apparently, to collect or distribute real-time assessment data or other data. And this is really problematic. We know that's also in the plan. We know that enrollment for last year was down about 3%. Enrollment in Missouri had been tracking down about 1% a year, but it's down 3%. So what I suspect will happen and what Desi is expecting is a whole bunch of students uh, became what they call disengaged for the year. We don't know where they were. Uh, we know that it's a lot of the youngest kids where parents didn't start them in preschool or kindergarten, but also kids from across all grades, mostly low or more likely low income students, students of color, homeless students. And so these kids haven't been involved in any schooling probably for a year. They will likely show up, hopefully will show up. I mean, that's kind of best case in the fall with substantial learning loss, engagement loss. And it's, we're going to have a lot bigger challenge to deal with and um Desi acknowledges that it that's if they come back if they don't come back then we have bigger problems than that so we've got a problem with uh, our data systems like knowing where these kids are where they've been and what their learning loss is and that i suspect will be uh you know a big dollar amount and also not a quick fix those things take years in addition, they acknowledged that the uh, temporary regulation that allowed districts to let students come to school a couple days a week, but not five, not fully in person or not fully remote, expires. So any districts that were considering that will not be able to do that in the fall. They had to submit in-person reopening plans, and then there's you know, an acknowledgement that students can sign up for the Missouri level virtual program called MOCAP. So everyone's got two choices kind of, but uh, that's what will be available. And we know, well, at least nationally, and I believe in Missouri, that you know, there's a substantial number of parents that want to continue with this uh, hybrid model or blended learning model, and perhaps some districts as well. You know, COVID's not over in Missouri. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have some parts of Missouri that are still very much dealing with COVID. So it may not even be possible to bring students back all day in person. So they're going to have to work that out. Another thing that I noticed in this plan is that for the sixth time in seven years, eight years, we're, uh, there's a plan to redo the assessments. So the last round of test score data we had was for 1819. That was the first time in five years you could compare how students did that year to the year before. So we had one time period we could compare to each other. That's out the door. Obviously, they're not going to want any com anyone to compare 2021 test data to anything. There is no 1920 test data. And they're going to redo the uh, assessments again. So we won't really know uh, where we stand. Uh, districts were given until June 15th to get as many students as possible into the building to do 2021 assessments. But obviously, we're going to have lost track of the kids who are disengaged and those will be probably the students struggling the most so we won't really have good data from that so so there's a lot of money and a lot of it's going to be distributed to school districts and uh, my biggest concern is that district school boards superintendents won't really know what to do with this large influx of money um yeah so the application identifies the educator workforce as an area um For to sure. focus on uh they use the phrase the educator preparation pipeline and yes. they mention teacher uh, recruitment and retention. 
what does that mean to you in terms of use of stimulus money? Does that mean higher salaries, bonuses? What does that no, mean? No. So they've uh, created a grant program. They use $50 million of stimulus money to create something called Grow Your Own Grants. And districts can apply for the grants. I shouldn't say it that way, but Grow Your Own Grants. Districts can apply for the money, and it's to help with teacher recruitment and retention. So basically encouraging the teachers you have to come back in the fall and trying to recruit teachers from within your community, you know, rather than hope that uh, students who graduate from the Mizzou education program will come to your school. So trying to recruit locally. Um, the application makes the point, and I don't really disagree, that one of the most impo- important factors in school success for kids is the teacher. But then the, they cite for that uh, a study done that links teacher evaluation to student learning. So they su- what frustrates me is the implication that we just need a body in front of the room that's called a teacher and we've fixed the problem. And then they cite a study that links the quality of that teaching to student success. Like you can't just recruit more teachers and expect that that's going to fix it. California did that about 15 years ago and spent billions and uh, discovered that it had no impact on academics. So it doesn't seem like a very strategic approach to making sure that we have the highest quality quality educators in the classroom. To me, a better solution would be to pay better teachers more and pay teachers that teach more challenging or more uh, either more challenging subjects or in more challenging schools or in subjects that we can't find teachers for uh, more and to move away from collective bargaining for what we pay teachers. But, yeah, it does talk a lot. In general, I'm a little concerned about how much this plan talks about teachers uh, rather than students and no mention of parents. Lastly, before we move to wrap up, we are recording this on July 1st, a holiday in the Chappellis household. Elias, we are in a new fiscal year. Do we have a budget? We have a budget. Welcome to 2022. I, I realize it's July, but that's uh, that's where we are today. So the governor signed the budget so that the government can be uh, paying bills today. But also with that, he brought some line item vetoes to a variety of um, bills that he did not want money to go towards. I think some of those uh, Susan knows some about. I haven't looked through them all the way, but uh, you know, they're, this past year has been very um, volatile in terms of revenues for the state, and it's not 100% clear where we're going ahead of here. So the governor could be thinking that you know revenues might not keep going up. You know, a year ago revenues were down. We're in the middle of the pandemic. They seem to have recovered, but it's it's anyone's best guess where we're going next. So we'll uh, that's one of the things I'm going to be watching going forward. I mean, look, what I was concerned about was like it's in the media, and clearly stories in the media might will probably pick out the the most egregious examples of this, right? But the governor took his red pen to some items that seem uh, confusing to me. So for the first time ever, there was a line item in the budget of $5 million so that charter schools have a pool of money to draw upon when they need capital improvements. School districts, you know, local school districts and school boards, if they want to uh, redo the library or add a library or add a gym or build a new building, they issue bonds. And they do not do that from the money given to them from the state to educate children. Charter schools have to pay for everything out of that same pot of money. They have to pay for a new roof or a new boiler out of the same pot of money that they pay teachers. And other schools do not. And so finally, the state recognized that children who attend public charter schools are public school students and ought to be treated a little bit more equally. And the governor cut that $5 million. And we just talked about $2 billion coming to the state. So I guess I'm confused of why target 
these public school students uh, specifically. They're, they're public school students. Also, something about $250,000 for EpiPens. It just seemed like I'm confused as to why it, in a time when the federal government is just writing us enormous checks, did we ha- did the governor feel like he had to take a red pen to some programs that on the surface or in a newspaper article seemed like they would have helped people? Yeah, I guess one thing to keep in mind with all this stuff is that a lot of things in the budget can be paid for out of other areas, other pots of money. So in terms of EpiPens, uh, I would be willing to guess that there is some other place that EpiPens can be bought, you know, maybe through the Medicaid program, some stuff like that. And as we go into the new year, we have to remember that the budget has to stay balanced at all times. So depending on what the revenues look like, um, a lot of uh, state departments would actually prefer that if they're going to have money restricted, because which is something the governor does when revenues are down, he has to stop um, different programs from spending money. They would actually just prefer that money be cut from the budget beforehand. So it's not just some dangling pot of money out there. So uh, I think until we get a little bit more context, it's hard to know what the real impact of a lot of these cuts would be. I think certainly the money that should have went to charter schools, I definitely think that's something that will not be happening now. But um, when it comes to everything else, we need a little bit more context. I wish governors and county executives and mayors all, all over the United States of America would take red pens to, to far more <laughs> to far more budgets. I'm sh- I fully agree that I wish the charter schools in Missouri had had access to this this funding to even things out. But uh, looking at the really big picture, I think uh, I'd like to see red pens for uh, trillions of dollars in in spending at the federal, state, and in, in local level here. I don't disagree, but I feel like school choice already struggles so much in this state, and yeah. then charter school students get the you know the short end of the stick again. They already get less in per, per student funding. They have no sources of capital funding in Missouri, and now the one five million dollars. And the you're, scheme. I, you're totally. You're totally. I right. mean, it's just like seems like more of a headline to say, "Don't worry, I uh, you know I got tough on the charter school students again." Uh, I don't know. I don't want to accuse a politician of being political, but it does seem as though there's some potential there. Uh, it's it's just frustrating. However, it seems as though, I could be wrong, I need to check, that there is the additional money for student transportation stayed in. So the ESA program should not have any more hurdles, but we'll see. David, what are you looking for this week? I understand that the Post-Dispatch is going to be running one of our op-eds tomorrow on the upcoming property tax votes in Clayton and Frontenac. So I'm looking forward to that being in the post tomorrow. But I'm just looking forward to that debate as we get to some August special elections in Clayton and Frontenac and Webster Groves and Camden County. Uh, Camden County, they're proposing a new law enforcement sales tax on top of the law enforcement sales tax they already have and on top of the money they're getting from the federal government from the American Rescue Plan, which can be spent on law enforcement. So so it'll be interesting to see what they do in, in Camden County. And then to sort of go where we back to where we started, definitely looking forward to in the over the next few months seeing how many cities and counties really do move forward with use tax votes in either the November special election period or the much more common April twenty twenty two municipal elections. Patrick. 
Yeah, so uh, earlier today there was a Supreme Court case dealing with voting rights. Uh, I'm going to be digging into that over the next few days. Obviously, the legislature is going to have to come back to do redistricting. They've also talked about uh, changing the election laws, whether it's the primary vote itself or voter ID. And we've talked about this in the past as well. It's, you know, it's probably every four years that we might talk about it. Um, but this is something that we've talked about in the past. This looks like a very interesting case and I'm uh, looking forward to, to digging into it and see if there's anything that impacts the Missouri legislature and what it might be doing in the next few months. Elias. Uh, well, with the start of the fiscal year, that means we're going to be getting a lot of uh, total spending numbers that for the fiscal year that just ended yesterday. And so what that means is that uh, with these totals, we'll see if Missouri can be lowering its income taxes. So there are uh, five revenue triggers on the books. If Missouri achieves them, the state's income tax rate will be dropping by 0.1. So uh, this week I'll be looking into how much money Missouri brought in, how much they spent on a variety of programs and how much of the federal stimulus money got out the door and see if our taxes are getting lower sometime soon. And Susan? Well, we've got a holiday coming up and I will be, uh, as always, just trying to keep track of what's going on with Desi and making sure that we don't take any data vacations this summer or learning vacations this summer and that we treat this uh, education situation we find ourselves in like a crisis, like the crisis that it is. Thank you all very much.